There is absolutely no going back to pre-COVID. The world is completely different. When we shifted to having people working from home, we quickly realized and understood by the summer, to be honest with you, that we were never going back. Because, you know, for years we have thought it was not possible to be productive with people working outside of the office. And we quickly realized that actually people were more productive, but we have to manage them and support them in a completely different way. We also shifted our objectives, our performance objectives, to be really about outcomes and metrics. And what we found is it actually allows middle managers and also people coming up the pipelines behind them to take a lot more leadership and a lot more initiative. And we're seeing people shine for the first time. So I think it's a huge plus and an enhancement of our workplaces. Welcome to the SIDCast, the podcast where we sit down with a fascinating guest each week to hear their story, who they are, and how they got to be that way. My name is Sid Finkelstein, a professor at Dartmouth College, and your host and guide as we embark on a journey of learning, discovery, and good old-fashioned conversation. Welcome to episode 112. This is Sid Finkelstein and this is the Sidcast. Every now and then I hear about someone who I know I've got to get on the Sidcast and share her story with you, my listeners. Julie Quenville is such a person. I didn't know Julie before reading a profile of her in Concordia University's alumni magazine, which is where I went to college, as did Julie. In 2005, Julie joined the McGill University Health Center as Chief of Strategic Planning, later became Director of Development and Marketing before being named President and CEO of the MUHC Foundation in 2015. She was named one of Canada's 100 Most Powerful Women by the Women's Executive Network in 2019. I've had many very, very successful women who are leaders on the SIDCast and truly believe that it's important to bring role models to as many venues as possible, including via this podcast, and create as many opportunities as we can to profile female leaders who are changing the world and doing it a little differently than most male leaders. Women bring diversity to executive teams, definitely true, but the nature of that diversity is not simply that there are women sitting around the table, it's their life experience, so often different than men's life experience that counts. Julie puts it this way, quote, when we choose a different kind of lifestyle to balance being a wife, a mother, and a leader, there's still a lot of judgment. It is essential to elevate more women to leadership positions because they bring diversity and a very different leadership style organizations gain significantly from bringing diverse voices to the table, end quote. You know, we've seen during COVID just how difficult it's been for so many people, so many families, and especially for so many women. Many of these women have dropped out of the fast track, sometimes out of the entire workforce, but out of the fast track because so much of the responsibility to cope rests on women in most families. Julie herself tested positive for COVID before vaccines were available and it was not an easy time. Yet she was still running a major organization, had teams who depended on her, and in fact, a giant hospital that depended on her and her team and her organization to keep generating funding. So yes, Julie Quenville's life experiences count for a lot and have helped not only shape her skill set and who she is as a leader, but also are important for the mere fact that they happened. Do you remember U.S. Supreme Court Justice Sonia Sotomayor when she testified to the Senate Judiciary Committee as part of her confirmation hearing? A big point of contention from Republicans arose when she testified that her life experiences shape who one is and that her background as a woman, a Latina, would be relevant in how she saw the world. During her Senate confirmation hearing, she was compelled to backtrack a little to assure everyone that, quote-unquote, ultimately and completely, a judge follows the law regardless of personal background. You know, but the point was made, and the point stands. Our background, our experiences, our upbringing all play a role in how we behave and how we think. Of course they do. I mean, this is essential to what we know about how the brain works, how our brains process information, and how it becomes part of who we are as individuals. I mean, this is what diversity actually can do. And so it was meaningful and interesting that Julie made a similar point as Justice Sotomayor on why women should be, need to be, part of leadership teams. But how? How does this happen? What can any woman do to increase the odds of making it to the very top and staying there? It should start, certainly, by not being shy about going for what you want and not letting anyone else define or limit your capabilities or aspirations. 
It's tough enough to get there without creating constraints for yourself and especially without challenging others' implicit biases and assumptions about what you can do. It recalls a story I heard a few years ago from Ellen Cullman. I was talking to her a while back and she shared a story about what happened to her on the way to the top. When she was an executive vice president at DuPont, she made the shortlist for consideration for a big promotion running the Asian business, which was a huge business for DuPont. That would make her a contender for the CEO job at DuPont down the line, a key stepping stone to the top. Her primary competition was another senior executive who happened to be a man. The key executive between Kalman's level and the CEO was the one who was going to be making the recommendation on who gets the job. And it was the CEO that was listening to this other key executive. And this other key executive argued to the CEO that while Ellen Kalman was clearly immensely talented, she had a family and moving to Asia would present a hardship for her. This turned out to be a determining factor and her competitor, the man, got the Asian job promotion. When Kalman found out what someone else had determined about her willingness to move to Asia and the attendant assumptions about what she would do or not because she was a woman and a mother, she was furious and she didn't hold back. She made it crystal clear to the top executives that no one should limit what she can do or decide for themselves what she wanted to do or not do. They never would have said the same thing to a man. And she said that. She stood up for herself. She called out other very powerful people. And it earned her even more credibility for toughness, for honesty, and for ambition. And several years later, Ellen Kalman became the CEO of DuPont. And she held that job from 2009 to 2015. For Julie Quenville, it is accepted wisdom that women need to be more proactive in addressing the changes needed to advance their careers and they need to take charge of it themselves. She does say that she spends a lot of time mentoring other women, in part because she didn't have that advantage herself, and she really sees what kind of difference it does make. You know, there's much more, of course. My conversation with Julie is replete with insights, tips, and a lot of honesty. And I'll be recommending this episode to my students, male and female alike, and I hope you'll share with others who might benefit from Julie's story of leadership and what it takes to get to the top and to stay there. Julie Quenville on the SIDCAST. Welcome to the SIDCast. This is Sid Finkelstein, and I'm really happy to talk today to Julie Kenvale. Julie, how are you? Good. Thank you so much for the invitation. It's great. And Julie is a fellow Montrealer, so it's particularly exciting for me to have you on the SIDCast and talk about your career and things that you've done. And there's a lot. But let's start. I said fellow Montreal. Were you born in Montreal? I was born and bred in Montreal, hoping to live and work in another city at some point in my life, but happy to be living here. Montreal is where people come to have fun. And so... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and would you say that that's been the case as you look at your career? Has it been fun? Absolutely. I feel incredibly blessed to have had mm -hmm. the career I've had so far. And there's so many more things I want to do in my career and in my life. Right. But right. I have been very lucky to have had a lot of support, a lot of mentors and many opportunities. So let's see how some of this all started. What did your parents do? So my father was an electrician. And my mother was a technician in radiology. And like many other women at that time, she put her career aside to be able to raise us. She had three kids. And my parents struggled a lot throughout their lives. And that really impacted me because my father made his way up the ranks. And uh, he mm -hmm. was at Simpson, which, of course, went bankrupt and then ended up at the Eaton stores, which went bankrupt. <laughs> and my mother did like many other women did in those days when her kids became adolescent and she had a lot more time on her hands. She tried to go back into a career. And that was extremely challenging because now you have to go back to school. You have to get recertified. So her second career was extremely challenging as well. Yeah. So what decade was this going on, more or less? I mean, it was more than you're, one decade. You're trying to get my age, Sydney. Uh, <laughs> So I was born in the 70s, and so this would have been in the uh, 80s and 90s. Okay, and so your mom went back to work, or she was working before being before married. Having, and have, exactly. Yeah, yeah, and then went back. It's interesting because I'm soon going to have a guest on the SIDCAST who has created an organization called Relaunch, specifically for women that had careers, thriving careers, and then decided to step aside for raising their kids for a period of time and then want to get back into it. And it turns out, given the talent shortage that exists everywhere, there's a lot of interest on the part of companies in trying to figure out how can they get involved with that. But, you know, when we go back, there's lots of stories way before we even talked about this as an, as an issue. People just kind of craft their careers and, and figure it out. 
Did you pick up any particular memories and bits of wisdom from your parents, either directly or indirectly? Not necessarily they sat you down, the young Julie, and they said, Julie, you got to do this, you got to do that. But things you have observed or seen and how that may have affected you in your own career. The driving force in my youth was actually my grandmother on my mother's side, who was an exceptional woman. And she was an ultra feminist for her days. And she used to tell me things like, (laughs) I remember the day that I told her I was going to get married. I was 22 when I got engaged. And she said to me, Julie, I didn't walk the streets to give you rights so you could waste it away getting married. (laughs) Oh, boy. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) So she was way ahead of her time. And she was always pushing us to get involved, despite the fact that they did not have a lot of money. She always said that there were many other people who had much less than they did. And it was an essential part of being part of a community to give back and help them. And so she was the one always pushing me into everything, pushing me into politics too at the time. We would watch the news together and watch political debates. And she was involved locally, provincially, federally, and was uh, extremely enthusiastic about more women taking a leadership role. Yeah, that's great when you hear those stories. There are always multiple role models. And grandparents are particularly interesting in many instances. So when you were growing up, did you know what you wanted to do? I wanted to be a foreign correspondent. I wanted Ah. to travel the world. I wanted to be in the middle of the war zones, in the middle of the greatest global crisis. And I wanted to help solve it. And so I actually went into journalism school in the beginning and was following my dream. But unfortunately, I discovered something really important about my own personality at that point is that I was never satisfied just observing and watching, which is what journalists are supposed to do. And they're supposed to be very satisfied. And I was getting incredibly frustrated that I couldn't get my hands dirty and fixing it. (laughs) So that's how I ended up moving to a different career. But growing up, I have to say, Sydney, I've been reflecting a lot about this, especially during COVID, when we have a lot more time to reflect on our lives. What transformed my youth and my adolescence the most is when I was 14, I actually fell quite ill. And like other teenagers, I was beginning to go down a path and being very self-focused and selfish Mm -hmm. and putting some of those youth dreams aside and starting Mm -hmm. to focus on other things. And then I fell ill and was misdiagnosed numerous times. And I'll never forget the moment that the doctor said to my mother, I think she has a brain tumor and Uh. I'll see her again in a couple of weeks. We're going to do this, this and this. And my mother, who just could not even pull herself together to drive home. And that was a big turning point in my life because I thought at that moment, this is ridiculous. I'm 14. I've got Mm. all my dreams ahead. It's Mm. not going to end here. And it really changed. It was like a switch for me. Once I got past that, it turned out that it was a complete misdiagnosis and they had missed what I had. And of course, one of the reasons I'm in healthcare today, as you can imagine, we'll talk about that a little later. But the turning point for me was living every day like it's my last. And when I returned to school, because I missed quite a few months of school at that time, when I returned, I joined absolutely every extracurricular activity. I joined the school board of directors. I was the student representative. I joined the yearbook committee, the graduation committee. I learned how to play violin. It was never good. (laughs) My family begged me to stop. But (laughs) I joined the public speaking competitions. Everything I could do, I joined. And I still live that way, Sydney. I think it's one of the most precious things is to be able to truly live in the moment and take every opportunity for a challenge and for trying something new. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. How do you keep that going? I wonder, because I also have tried over the years to do something quite similar in terms of taking on challenges, living in the moment, really breathing in every sense of the term. But it's hard sometimes. There's so many distractions. There's so many things that happen. There's so many days that go by. I mean, just Yesterday, I was telling my wife, you know, what did I actually accomplish yesterday? It was really annoying. It wasn't like I took the day off. I was working. And everyone listening knows they've had days, maybe many days, maybe weeks. And sometimes we look back and we could think even years. But how do you keep the edge going to kind of fulfill that mindset that you're talking about, Julie? I think it's separating having impact on your day. So feeling like you were productive Mm -hmm. from having the ability to recognize something beautiful during your day. And every day there is something beautiful. And I used to keep a notebook, Sydney, where I would note at least three things during the day that Mm -hmm. I thought were beautiful, just things I wanted to note. And it's a great reminder to oneself to actually take a step back, especially when we're working from home. I mean, in this hybrid model where we're spending a lot of time in front of a computer screen, 
having the ability to walk away from it and go outside and see the butterflies and see the birds and speak to our children in a calm, relaxing way and listen to them and listen to our spouse about how their days went. Those are the key moments is appreciating the simple things and it relaxes you. And it relaxes you. Yeah. That's one of those kind of ironic things that you think that you're going for it. You're always focused. But in fact, it could be, it's kind of Zen-like. <laughs> it could be actually much more comfortable for you, but it does take some practice. And so, for example, you just shared a tip of, you know, every day you would write down or mm-hmm. think about absolutely three things that were, and you use the word beautiful. Yeah. Something that is beautiful or remarkable or something you want to remember, but just doing that changes your mindset. And after that, you don't need to write it down anymore because your brain is already programmed to recognize things that are going around you. We've all been in that situation, you know, especially for parents and the kids are saying, mom, you know, why aren't you paying attention to me? And so having that ability to put things down and walk away and be able to appreciate something else at a time. And we are actually so much more efficient when we come back to it. As a leader, I always say this to the team, you absolutely must disconnect from work because you will be able to come back to what you're looking at, the challenge or the opportunity with a fresh outlook. If you don't have the ability to disconnect, you'll always be just moving along without thinking strategically. Right. And just one kind of academic geek thing to throw in here. Your example is a great illustration of how many people think you need to change your attitude to act differently. But research shows that it's changing behavior that will lead to changing attitudes. And that's what your example actually tells us. When you actually start to be very mindful about what is remarkable or special, it starts to change, as you said, your mindset. And in some ways, it's easier to get there because if you think, oh, I have to change my wiring, how I think, that's hard. It's going to take forever. But actually just behaving a little bit differently could help get you there. Absolutely. And it's the same thing with challenging yourself. Something that I've always done and I will always continue to do is keep notes of things I've never done before and that I should try. I may not like it, but I should give it a try and then add it to my personal development box. And the same thing with food. If I've never tried it, I should try it and I may not enjoy it and I may not have it again, but it's part of my own self-development. And that's really important. It's a journey. It's not an end game. And so that's really important because it changes your mindset about things. It makes things a lot less scary. So part of that list of the things I had never done, I had always said, one day I should go skydiving. Oh, my goodness. And so, <laughs> and so I did it. I assure you, I'll probably never do it again. But even as I was coming down, you know, you have to actually jump off the plane and two seconds of terrifying uh, experience. And I said to myself, you are probably never going to do this again. Try and appreciate it. And I was able to find my Zen and calmly Mm -hmm. look around and appreciate the scene Mm -hmm. around me. And it was beautiful. Yeah, it does take a lot of kind of mind control almost that you can do that because your adrenaline is flying. I mean, in that particular instance, right? Our brains are not wired for doing things like this. So you have to be self-protective. That's so interesting. Now, you studied journalism, but were you actually a reporter at some point or a writer? I did some radio. I did a little bit of television. I did some print as well. And I uh, Mm -hmm. was associate editor of a weekly newspaper uh, here in Montreal. And so I did all three and loved it, but I didn't feel satisfied working as a journalist. So how did you go about making the shift from reporting on and observing to doing? I started to make some calls to explore what my options were. What were the possible careers that I could go into? I had done a double major in political science and journalism. And so my M&A, who was someone that my family knew for a long time, he was extremely active and, of course, I had reported on a lot of his activities over the years. He actually gave me a call and he said, I want you to come work with me. I think you're going to love the impact of the work in the community. And so I joined him and worked a couple of months there and worked on the Quebec election campaign and then was offered a position in Quebec City to work for Philippe Couillard when he was health minister. So I joined his team on day one when we were in Quebec City. I was the youngest member of his political team And uh, within a couple of months, was promoted to associate chief of staff, and I ran the Montreal office and social services. So an incredible experience for an extraordinary man. Yeah. And just to make sure everyone knows, you said MNA, which is Member of National Assembly, which is equivalent to kind of like a congressman or a state senator, for example. Exactly. So he was our elected official. He was incredibly active in the community. He had built 
many organization, community organizations. He was an outspoken leader. And what was unique about working with him, he became really my first major mentor in my career. And he was always, always challenging me. And I always remember that and I appreciate it. And I still speak with him and recognize the impact he's had on my life and my career. To give you an example, Sydney, at some of the events that he would be speaking at, he would, without any sort of notice, say, and Julie wants to say a few words to you and throw me the microphone. I and love that was it. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> Never in a million years would I have felt comfortable or accepted to speak mm-hmm. at such events, but he didn't give me that choice. He wanted to yeah. challenge me. And had he not done that, I may not have been ever comfortable in my career. Yeah, that's such a good example. I use a similar example in some of my talks of a former student of mine, MBA graduate who worked for the CFO of a company and was always preparing the PowerPoint presentations and all the rest. And as they walked into a board meeting one day, he turns to her and says, I'd like you to start the beginning of the presentation. And she, of course, had maybe literally five minutes notice before she's going to do that and was certainly terrified. But she said kind of what you're saying as well. That was almost a life-changing thing because all of a sudden you realize, I can do it. And this boss of hers, the CFO, who I also interviewed afterwards because she gave me permission to do that, he said, I knew that she was going to be great, but I was there in case she stumbled. And I've been doing this forever. It would have looked so seamless. Nobody would have known that she had stumbled at all. She still would have been looking great and still be a high flyer. And I use that in the context of super bosses, which are leaders that help create other leaders. So I'm going to have an additional new anecdote to share, Julie. Just if we can go back for a second to the shift from media to working in politics. What did you tell your boss or bosses in media? I guess you were in a newspaper when you wanted to go. And what was their reaction? I don't think they were surprised. That newspaper was also a stepping stone. So many people would Mm. move on to daily newspapers. What I told them was that I was seeking to have more direct impact on our community. And I was making that jump, moving from reporting what was happening in the community to having an opportunity to actually take part in resolving some of those major issues. And I still stand by that. So they got it. They understood. They knew you at that point as well. And so your first boss was a, not your first boss, but your boss in politics, the M&A, was a particularly important mentor for you in the way that he challenged you, you described. Could you share anything else about what he did or taught you that sticks with you today? Absolutely. When I was offered the political position in Quebec City, I wasn't sure I could do the job. I was reluctant to even accept it. This was a career opportunity of a lifetime. And I had this conversation with him saying, I'm not sure I should accept because I'm not sure I can do this. And he said, absolutely, you can do this. I know you very well. And when you have challenges, I'll be there to support you. And I took the job and he was there. When I had challenges, I would give him a call. I knew he would take my call and he helped and guided me through it. And that, Sydney, is the key to any leader's career. And I really strongly believe today in my own role in doing the same is to be able to support, to pull and to push other leaders up the ranks because it is normal, especially for women. There really is a confidence gap and they just need some mentors some people to help them and to tell them that they can absolutely deliver on them. Yeah. And then to be there for support. Most of the time, people don't need a lot of support. But knowing that somebody has your proverbial back on this really makes a big difference. We're going to jump a little bit. What are you doing today? So today, I'm president and CEO of the McGill University Health Center Foundation. So it's now one of the biggest foundations, hospital foundations in the country. We are basically the teaching hospital to McGill's Faculty of Medicine. And our role is to make the difference between quality of care and excellence. So we provide seed funding that allows for researchers to secure grants at every level. So we play an essential role in building innovation in the hospital sector. Mm -hmm. And were you involved in the creation of the new giant hospital and health center in Montreal? I was actually. I played a number of roles that related to that construction. When I was in Quebec City and the Minister of Health announced the funding to build this new hospital, I shifted to Montreal, initially became a chief of staff to the CEO of the hospital to work specifically on the construction. So I was really excited, Sydney, because I thought, you know, it's a once in a lifetime opportunity to actually build an academic hospital from the ground up. 
So I was getting tours and involved in the selection of the color schemes and the tiling and everything you can think of when it was still a hole in the ground. So I am so happy and proud of what we've built here in the city. It's now considered one of the top hospitals in the world. Interestingly enough, the reason it is so extraordinary and that we're so excited is it was a brand new concept. Everyone thought we were crazy when we started to move towards this concept was to integrate fully 100% of the research within the hospital. And so we took more than 60 different research sites and integrated them into the hospital. We had researchers who had never been in contact with patients before who are now intertwined into the clinical space. So you can imagine when you start to bring these brilliant minds together in one space and you force them to work together, what kind of discoveries we have. And we saw it in the pandemic, right? If everybody is working towards the same objective and sharing information, medicine advances so much more fast. Right, right. And so this is really interesting. Is this something that exists or is done in other hospitals or other teaching hospitals and universities as well? This, we... this integration of researchers directly with the clinicians, I think is what you're saying, right in the hospital. Absolutely. This was a new concept when we started to work on this. The pharmaceutical industry was beginning to work in a similar concept So if I can describe to you, I wish I could bring you uh, visually into it, but the Research Institute does not have any closed offices. It is 100% open space. And all of the researchers, let's take cancer because it's easy to understand. Every researcher who touches upon cancer is now in a shared open space. No one is allowed to buy equipment. Everything is pooled together. So rather than buying a microscope that you might be using once a month, by pooling everybody's efforts, we're creating these ultra-specialized mega platforms with the specialized professionals to work them. And everyone has access to these, but they have to contribute to joint research initiatives. So this was extremely new at the time, and it's allowed us to create these visionary programs. We launched a program three years ago before the pandemic hit called MI4, that gathers more than 200 researchers and thousands of people, professionals, to build the first institute for infectious and immune diseases in the world. So we had started building this before the pandemic. The pandemic was the first test of whether or not we could do this. And it became the major source of support for the federal government here in Canada. But the most important part of it is none of this would have been possible had we not consolidated research and care into one institution and brought everyone together. Was there a lot of pushback on that idea? I mean, I could see there's advantages. It's easy to see some advantages, but I also know the mindset of researchers, which is, you know, lock me up in my lab, give me all the equipment I need, and leave me alone, and I'm going to discover some great things. Absolutely, there was pushback, and many of them were threatening to leave. And mm. we also added to that that if you didn't have any grants, if you didn't have any support, that you didn't have any space. And so this was revolutionary in the academic sector. (laughs) In the end, less than 10 people left. And we recruited incredible top talent from all around the world, thanks to this new concept. And so the foundation plays a big role in that, right? We put in $340 million in this new hospital and the historic institutions. But now our role really is about bringing that top talent in. So we're trying to recruit someone from Oxford, for example, and this person's going to come in and we will provide funding for a number of years to reestablish research labs, bring in PhD students and really kickstart. And without that seed funding, it's difficult mm-hmm. to recruit. Yeah. Now, you mentioned the pandemic a couple of times. How has it been for you professionally and personally? I think the hard part of dealing with the pandemic is more on a human level. So I'll separate the business from our team and how difficult it has been for families. You know, most of our team have young children. And so schools closed, daycares closed, separated from their support network. It has been especially difficult for women because, and I'll speak for myself, the pandemic hit, the doors closed. Mm -hmm. You have no more help to clean the house, no more help with laundry, no more help with the kids. And you are left alone. And the children have no school, no physical activities, no outlet for their energy and their frustrations. And so this, to me, was the toughest part of the pandemic. So as a leader, I was most concerned about the people on my team. I was concerned about their emotions. I was concerned about what was going on at home. And trying to balance that with shifting the business. So from a business perspective... We were extremely ready for the pandemic. In January, when we saw this coming out of China, we immediately started to plan for a proper work from home. You were anticipating that this was going to happen? We were absolutely anticipating that because of our proximity with the infectious disease experts. 
they were telling us that this was a lot more serious than the government was letting us know. And so we began to get ready and we thought if nothing happens, we are ready for the next crisis. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. so from even before the government declared it a pandemic, we had actually sent everyone home already and everyone was fully functional. And by the time the Monday came around, we had already shifted 100% of our fundraising to support MI4, to support our experts in infection and immunity. And so what we did is, and I think this helped everybody get through the pandemic, to be honest with you, Sydney, because we were contributing so directly Mm -hmm. to the pandemic response. There's nothing worse than sitting at home helpless and watching things happen. And we had a unique, wonderful opportunity to be contributing each and every day to Mm -hmm. the response and to helping the federal government. So we provided nearly $8 million in seed funding for a number of research initiatives that were then funded by the federal government. Let me give you an example. We poured in, in the first two months, $150,000 to help two chemists who were working with private companies in Canada who had a hunch that they could build the chemical reagents for COVID-19 testing. When the borders shut down, we did not have access to any of the products necessary for COVID testing. So we funded them and the federal government then paid for the next 30 million tests. So that was for us, from a business perspective, we were able to shift our business rapidly enough to do well. We did 24 million fundraising revenue last year, plus our investments. But from a personal perspective, we were also able to feel like we were contributing. And that was extremely encouraging to get through the pandemic. Yeah. And I think also you had to deal with COVID at one point personally as well and your family on top of everything else. Could you share a little bit about that, how you got through that? (laughs) Absolutely. We stayed hidden in the house for months like everyone else, trying to stay protected. But with kids in school, uh, it's impossible to be completely protected. So my children and I, my son is 11, uh, Noah and Victoria is 14. So the three of us caught COVID this past March. And that was extremely difficult. One, we were in quarantine for 28 days. We had the UK variant. I guess we were some of the first to get that very, very contagious variant. And it was extremely difficult. One, from a business perspective, I was thrilled to see that we had the infrastructure in place for them to be able to manage without Mm -hmm. me contributing full time. It was difficult emotionally to have to deal with the fear, the judgment, something we don't talk enough about. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to COVID, there was a lot of judgment about who is bringing it in to Uh, the community and who is spreading it. If you have it, if you have it, somehow you're responsible. Maybe you did not stay as isolated as you should have. And I understand for parents, there's a huge implication for others. So in my son's class... There were 50 kids between the two classes in his grade. Those poor families had to isolate for two weeks. So that meant nobody could go to work and the parents and the children could not go to school. So Mm. the impact when it comes to a public health crisis, the impact on others is immense. So here's the positive. The community was incredibly supportive. There was very, very few who actually were negative towards it. So I discovered that the community that I live in is wonderful and supportive. People were dropping food at my door with little notes of support. And also, I always like to look at the positive. It was a wonderful time to be living that as a family and to see how we pulled together. And as I tell the kids all the time, this will be a great story for your grandchildren. (laughs) That's right. Um, so as someone who worked for you know a year and a half on fundraising for COVID, living through it was very different. The symptoms were immense. It makes me absolutely livid to hear people say that it's just like a cold. I was sick for three months, just to give wow. you a sense. Yeah. And have you kind of drawn on that personal experience? Because we're not done with COVID by a long shot and how it affects what you're doing, what your team is doing, what the hospital foundation is doing as well. And kind of our next stage of dealing with COVID. We're at a stage now where vaccination rates are very high, certainly in Quebec and in lots of parts of the world, a little bit less so in the U.S., but hopefully slowly catching up. But there's fears about many things, including new variants and all sorts of other things. And I think most experts are saying that there'll be some form of COVID around for a very long time. Hopefully it will only be that flu-like type thing eventually, but I'm not sure. So how has that affected you and your thinking and your job really as you think about this? Obviously it helped me understand the severity of COVID. I could speak to examples that people don't realize. I'm a 43-year-old healthy person I was sick for three months and I still have, you know, circulatory challenges. Uh, My blood pressure shot up. 
My toes went black. So it's not just about losing your sense of taste and having some headaches. And I had these unbelievably horrendous headaches that nothing would stop. And we have found out recently through some research collaboration that that our experts have led internationally that the reason we get these significant headaches is that there's inflammation in the brain. This is not a cold. This is a serious inflammatory disease. So it has impacted my perspective because it's incredibly severe. And we are not going to be out of this pandemic until the world is vaccinated because the virus will continue to mutate where there is a lot of virus floating in the community. And so we are lucky to live in a country that has vaccination and has access to vaccination. And now we need to help the rest of the countries get access to vaccination so that we can start to halt the mutations and protect our children. Yeah, it is going to be a long process because it's a big world and the resources are not there yet. Has the approach to managing the business during the pandemic I'm sure that you've seen and probably spearheaded some changes with respect to speed and focus and maybe paying more attention to mental health than we may traditionally have done. Are you seeing or thinking that some of the changes, they're not all bad changes. Focus on speed is a good change. Focus on people's personal lives and mental health is a very good change. Are they going to stick with us, do you think, both where you sit in your job and then more generally in the business community? And what do we need to do to maybe not lose some of these positive things that have come out, if we could even say that, uh, from the pandemic? There is absolutely no going back to pre-COVID. The world is completely different. When we shifted to having people working from home, we quickly realized and understood by the summer, to be honest with you, that we were never going back because, you know, for years we have thought it was not possible to be productive with people working outside of the office. And we quickly realized that actually people were more productive, but we have to manage them and support Mm -hmm. them in a completely different way. So by December of 2020, we had already developed with our team brand new policies for a hybrid work model where we have teams coming in for one to two days a week so that they could have team work time and planning time and that the rest of the time they would work from home. So that gives them the flexibility of being able to manage their families, their home life and also working as a team. And when you're looking at the mental health, you know, what we implemented, we implemented weekly calls, individual calls to each and every team member to make sure that they are okay. So these are just mental health checks. We also shifted our objectives, our performance objectives to be really about outcomes and metrics. So the managers who were really micromanagers, I think we all know who those people are, they don't perform well in Mm -hmm. a setting where you have a hybrid model or working from home. Mm -hmm. because they cannot see what you're doing all day long. And so we're really focused in on supporting our managers to help be there for support and to have very, very clear expectations about responsibilities and outcomes and then take a step back and help the team. And what we found is it actually allows middle managers and also people coming up the pipelines behind them to take a lot more leadership and a lot more initiative. And we're seeing people shine for the first time. So I think it's a huge plus and an enhancement of our workplaces. Yeah, that's great when you hear these stories of people having a chance to really be a star themselves. I also think when we have this kind of this hybrid model, the time that you spend face to face with anyone is really valuable because it's scarce. It's just not as common. And so you have to ban the PowerPoint presentations and all the other stuff that fills up time and really kind of engage with people and actually talk and debate and analyze and try to think about what types of work can be done more easily on your own, or not necessarily on your own, but through Zoom or what have you, but remotely versus in person. And I think that requires some thinking on the part of leaders to almost re-educate some people, but also to set in place some standards. And I think maybe some of what you just said about micromanagement or the micromanagers is a good example of that. And, you know, building on what you just Mm. said, uh, Sydney, is, you know, we have shifted our team meetings as well to have them much more frequently. It was hard to bring everybody together into a room and then you would have that social time So we've now scheduled a number of social initiatives. We keep them much shorter than we normally would have done, but having games, get to know you things, initiatives, Mm -hmm. sharing home projects. We got through those meetings with the team. We got to meet their children. So rather than having mothers embarrassed that the kids are coming through the screen, we say, bring them in. Let's meet your children. Let's meet your cat. Let's meet your dog. Let's meet your husband. Because that allows us into people's homes in a way that we didn't have access to before. It was a clear separation between the two. 
The other thing that we've implemented, which I think has been extremely helpful, is having a number of small, quick meetings with the team on opportunities and challenges. So, you know, something I would have done previously with a small group of key leaders, now I bring the whole team in, is saying, well, here's a new opportunity or here's a challenge that we have in front of us. Let's talk about it. Let's brainstorm as a team. Let's get everyone's ideas and then we'll take it away. And so what I found is it engaged the entire team in the strategic vision and the strategic plan of the institution. So we have now taken that a step further. We are building towards a certification for our foundation called Imagine Canada. So it's a multi-step one-year process Mm -hmm. of certifying us and making sure that we have the best infrastructure. I'm not sure we would have been able to build towards that pre-pandemic because of the challenges of bringing people together. The other thing that we've done is because we're working virtually and it's easy to bring everyone together is we have engaged every member of the team for the last couple of months towards our strategic plan. And so this has been wonderful is that absolutely everyone, even the person entering the donations has a say in how we're building our strategic plan for the future. And that's really important because it's their plan. It's not my plan. It's not the board of directors plan. It's the plan of the team. And so this is something that we've been able to gain. This is the positive out of the pandemic. Right. So actually, and again, kind of ironically, you can get greater interaction and involvement of people I mean, you have to do something about that. It doesn't just happen automatically, but you can do it in a remote world. It's so easy to just get everyone together for a short meeting. People are not traveling all over as they always did before. You know, one thing I've puzzled about, I thought about talking to other leaders, and I want to ask you about this as well, is so I asked you about mental health and some of the changes there. And that was like never a topic anyways in business, right, for the longest time. And I think it's finally a good thing that it's okay to talk, at least for many people, not everyone, okay to talk about it a little bit more, but also, you know, seeing people's families. And so we're getting into people's personal lives. Yes. And there's two parts. First, not everybody likes that or wants that. And secondly, there have been things that have happened that have not been so good about personal lives in a professional setting. And we can label that as the Me Too movement at a high level. There are other aspects to it as well. So I guess the question is, there are so many benefits to recognizing that we are human beings (laughs) and we have families or we have friends and we have cats and dogs. And it's nice to talk about it and get to know that. On the other hand, there's a softening of the lines between professional and personal lives. And I wonder how you think about it or have thought about that, especially in the context of some of the really big issues that have finally gotten more recognition around sexual harassment and inequity in the workplace. Boy, some great topics (laughs) there. So I think in a virtual world, a couple of things. One, it does help the introverts because it's more comfortable. If we're looking at the workplace, and I've said this many times to our team, this is your workplace. These are not your friends. You know, you have to maintain a certain level of professionalism. When I look at the Me Too movement and all of the horrible stories, I could spend an hour telling you stories that I have heard from other women and what I have endured over the years. That doesn't happen in a virtual world. These are things that happen in a social environment at work in person. No one is getting sexually harassed through Zoom. I've never heard that before. But it's the office lunch with a glass of wine or the office cocktail in a restaurant where things start to happen. Mm. And so I feel like women are much more protected in a virtual world. Can this be sustained? Absolutely not. There has to be some live interaction. You know, the things that I've endured, if I look at women in the workplace, so the women who came before me, many of them felt that they had to choose between having children and having a senior position. And so many of them, unfortunately, were forced to give up on having children. And that's unacceptable. And I heard that numerous times from those women saying, well, you know, I made my choice. In my generation, we had the right to have children and take on CEO positions. There are too few women across the country, but we endured a significant amount of sexual harassment because I think in part, we and the women who came before us kind of allowed it. I remember complaining about a situation that was completely unacceptable with a female leader who, in the hopes that she would intervene and protect me, and she had said, well you know, so what? He's attracted to you, like move on. There's a fine line being attracted to you and facing sexual harassment in the workplace. That's not acceptable. And the mentor that I mentioned to you before, the one in politics in Quebec City, in parliament, there were lots of cocktails, lots of alcohol, as anyone knows who's worked in politics. And he used to say to me, when I leave, you leave. That's how it's going to work. Because when I'm there, I can protect you. And when I leave, I can't be there to stop it. And I can't tell you how many times, even under the table, you get groped by a variety of different older men. 
you know, we kind of shrug that off. I actually would go home and not enjoy the networking that occurs after he would have left. Today, where I'm sitting, all of that is unacceptable. One, it's unacceptable that I sat there and endured being groped under the table and just you know, shrugged it away as though this is normal behavior. And it's also unacceptable that myself and other women lost out on networking opportunities because we right. could not ensure our own safety. So I see today as our responsibility, women and men, but it has to come from us first to say it's not going to happen anymore. And I always tell, you know, the women that I mentor and the women on my team, if anything happens, I will be there to support you. I will express the fact that this is unacceptable. It doesn't matter how big the donor is. It doesn't matter how important the board member is or Mm -hmm. the physician. This is unacceptable and it will not be allowed to happen with us around. That's what it takes. And I'm so thrilled to see the Me Too movement because the young women of today, they are not taking it anymore, but they are not taking it because they have the confidence of knowing that they will be protected and supported and they will not be accused of being weak. We should not be laughing these things off. What do you think is the role of the more senior male executives in this situation? I know there's a lot of work on allies and other terminology. You've particularly singled out women leaders as having a role as a leader and as a woman, and probably this is the case for many women, having endured various things over the years, so we have personal experience. But there are a lot of people that would say, and I guess I would probably say as well, senior male executives shouldn't be getting, you know, a get-out-of-jail-free card or just, you know, it's not my problem or I don't have to deal with it. So that's one part. And then the other part is there is more fear on the part of many male bosses on what they can say and do because of the Me Too movement. And when I say say or do, I don't mean do something inappropriate. I mean, even intervene. So it's a little tricky. So I guess I'm going to ask you for some advice for the male bosses and executives and CEOs that are tuning in. Love that question because I hear it all the time. Why did I single out women? It's because I have found the women in my career to be the ones shrugging it off. And that is extremely damaging to other women. Women have to protect them, they have to support them, and just because you've endured it in your career doesn't mean others should. So that's why I've singled them out. I have found most men to be actually quite rational, and when you describe situations, they will, for the most part, intervene. I think the male leaders play a role in ensuring that the workplace is professional. In other words, I heard even last week from a young woman in her early 30s who I'm mentoring who they would talk about naked women in the middle of team meetings. She was the only woman, and so this apparently seemed like normal behavior. That senior executive has to intervene to say that this is not professional behavior and it's not acceptable. And there have to be penalties because that is the behavior that creates a high-tension workplace for women, and they're going to leave. They're not going to stay in this environment. And Diversity includes bringing in women at every level to make sure that their voices are heard. Age, diversity, gender diversity, all very important. Men also have to ensure that even when their executives, their managers are misbehaving, that there are penalties, that there are consequences Mm -hmm. for that. And when there are clients, it happens a lot in the business development sector, that even when their big clients are behaving in such a way that there be a call to say that this behavior cannot be tolerated in the organization. So if they're not being called upon, their behavior continues because they're allowed to. So continuing on the theme of women in leadership, and now thinking a bit more about the glass ceiling, which you have broken, and I have a feeling you're going to continue to break for years to come. What was the key, do you think, in your own career that got you to the CEO position, as opposed to being, for example, someone very capable, but on the staff of someone else who happened to be a male? So what happens with women, and it happened with me, and I'll give you some clear examples, but what happens Mm. with women is lack of confidence in comparison to men. And so there's some uh, scientific evidence. Lots lots of it. I talk about this all the time with groups, and sometimes I'm getting a lot of blank stares from men who can't understand it. Right. So men will apply for a position if they check off three of the 20 boxes, right? They feel qualified for the position, whereas women will look and say, oh, you know, I only meet 18 of the 20 criteria. I won't apply. Mm -hmm. I'm not qualified for it. And so this is a really important factor that we have to keep in mind. I have been successful because of the mentors that I have had. I am very honest about that. When I left the minister's office, I went and I worked for the hospital in a senior position, and it was another mentor who came to get me. I had never in my entire life wanted to do philanthropy. It never even occurred to me as an option. And he was someone I had interacted with in politics and then He was chairman of our campaign for the construction of the new hospital. 
And he came to see me and he said, I want you to run my back office. And I said, but I've never done any philanthropy. I didn't go to school for that. This is not what I want to do. And he convinced me and he said, Julie, I will teach you what I know and I will help you through it. And we will do this together. And he did. I built a team and he mentored me for years. He introduced me to his friends, his colleagues, and helped me through it. And I still Mm -hmm. call him on a regular basis Mm -hmm. for advice and for support. He also played an incredible role in my life. So when I was approached for this position, (laughs) he was one of the people who had approached me for the position. And I said, you know, my kids are young. I want to take it easy. I think that I should probably focus a little bit more on doing other things. And Mm -hmm. I'm not sure I could do it. The foundation was in trouble. It was a sinking ship. And I knew it was going to take a lot of work to get it back up. And he said, we need you here and I'll help you do it. Others called me as well with the same message that they would Mm -hmm. help me through Mm -hmm. it if I would accept to take the leadership role. And they've always been there to support me. But I would never have done it had it not been for him and for others reassuring me that I was the right person for this very difficult job. Yeah, and sometimes people don't realize that's really important. I mean, it's a good example of what mentorship really means. And sometimes, you know, we could use the word sponsorship as well as maybe, a, you know, a step up. A mentor doesn't just listen, provide a little bit of advice. A mentor actually does something and does a lot. And I imagine that's what you do yourself, given those role models as a mentor. I think you're a mentor to many people many people. You've alluded to it already. But I think it'll be good to talk a bit more about that, like what makes for a great mentor and what makes for someone that means well, does some good things, but doesn't really make the difference that some of these great mentors or sponsors that you're talking about do. Because I think there's a lot of people listening that want to do that and maybe think that they're doing a good job as a mentor, but don't really realize the bar is a little bit higher than where they're at. I don't see my job per se as a mentor as being giving advice. It's challenging. I want and I strive to challenge them to think about their lives, their professional development in a different way, especially for women. I think the number one challenge that they are facing, and I hear this all the time, and I said it so many times, Sydney, as well, is, well, how am I going to do it all? My husband's getting frustrated because I'm not home enough. You know, I have young children. The other moms are picking the children up at 3.30. I am not. (laughs) I see that as being an important part of my role is they never talk about that in the beginning when you start to meet with them, the young women. And then when you push them and you challenge them, then it starts to come out as being the number one challenge in their professional lives. Because it's that balancing act, which I hope post-COVID in a hybrid world, that's going to help more women. So I have a very honest conversation with women. So what is the advice I give them? Is one is identify what it is that you have in your life, your responsibilities that you enjoy less and get some help. It takes a community of support. It takes a community of support to be able to raise children. It cannot be left to two people to manage raising children and careers and so on. And there was a time in my own career when I was thinking about leaving the hospital and I hadn't accepted this position where I was really questioning myself about how can I balance this? I'm a single mom now, Sydney, for seven years now. And so I was questioning my own sanity and Mm -hmm. (laughs) continuing to take promotions and having that additional responsibility at home and managing a home by myself. And I spoke with someone who's exceptional. She was our Canadian ambassador to France until recently, Isabelle Udon, someone exceptional. And she always took my calls as well when I needed advice. So I phoned her and I said, Isabelle, I'm having a life crisis at this moment. I don't know where to go. And she said to me, didn't even ask me any questions. She went right into it. She said, Julie, I never baked cookies for my son and he's fine. (laughs) (laughs) And I mentioned that because that's what I really needed to hear. We are always so concerned about what it is that we're not doing and comparing ourselves to others, but we're not seeing how difficult it is in their homes. It's difficult for everybody. It's a stage of life that's extremely difficult to balance. And so I see my role as a mentor to challenge them and ask them those difficult questions and get to the core of where their balancing act is challenging. And the other thing that we haven't really talked about is the positions and the promotions that I turned down. Mm. Talked about these great opportunities that I accepted and have been lucky enough to have an opportunity to take on. But there are many other positions that today, grown-up me looks at and says, that was a big mistake. And some of my mentors had approached me for different positions. One of them was to run the Bob Ray leadership campaign across Canada, which was a lifelong dream to do something so exceptional and hands-on. And I had turned it down 
in the hopes of saving my marriage and doing what I was being asked to do, which was spend more time at home and have children. And the message I tell young women is finding the right partner is the biggest choice you're going to make for the future is seek out the person who's going to live the same life that you want in the future, not the life you have today. And if you have the right partner and the right support network around you, there's absolutely no reason to turn down career opportunities. So find support, find the right partner, and move towards your ambitions. Of course, it's one of those easier said than done, right? (laughs) Because you might think you've got all the pieces in place, but lots of things change as well. You shouldn't feel guilty about it, I guess, is the message about it, is women feel guilty about their ambitions. Do you think it's because there's a default still in society, in Western society, that no matter how smart and accomplished a woman might be in their professional career, their definition, and some of this is a self-definition, not just a societal definition of a person, is that they're the only one that could be a mother. There's no one else that could do that. I mean, that's a fact. But that becomes a default about what's right and what's wrong. Do you think that that's kind of beneath a lot of this? Absolutely. But that's imposed by women, mostly, I think. And what is being a mother? It doesn't look the same for everyone. And Mm -hmm. so that's part of the conversation is what is motherhood for me versus someone who is choosing to be at home and putting their career on the side. I'm not criticizing that as a choice at all. That is a very courageous Mm -hmm. choice and a challenging one because coming back on the workplace is extremely challenging. But what does motherhood look like? It doesn't need to look like the same to everybody. And we're not damaging our children because we have a career. In fact, I believe that my children are better today, are stronger today, are much more resilient and agile because of their mom's career. You know, being president and CEO of the MUHC Foundation is not a career, it's not a job for me, it's who I am. It is intertwined in my life, it is part of who my friends and my network are. Every day I have an impact on the hospital and with physicians. My children are intertwined into the hospital My son knows most of the researchers by name, (laughs) and he's extremely proud of the impact that I'm having. My daughter is unbelievably ambitious. She wants to be a civil rights lawyer now and is thinking about diversity every minute of the day. And I don't think she would have such a strong character today had she not had an example at home that it is possible for a woman to take on a leadership role and to try and reach for her ambitious dreams. Right. Yeah. These are the stories that need to be told and shared more and more. And as you said it correctly, I think people that make other choices, that's fine. Everyone's a little bit different. Now everybody has to do the same thing as long as you try to be a good person and help others and whatever that happens to be. You know, the time always flies by on these conversations. And I feel like there's so many other things we didn't get to that I was going to ask you about. But you really shared, I think, some great insight into what it's like to be a leader of a complex organization in the age of covid that also happens to be a woman. And you've already kind of given lots of advice. I could just see my students and former students thanking me for this one. But I'm going to ask you for one last question, and that's an advice question to yourself. And it's kind of like if you could magically go back in time to when you were a young woman, 21 years old, probably still in school, and knowing what you know now about the world, about life, about business, about leadership, and what you couldn't have known then, is there one bit of advice you'd give yourself As the 21-year-old Julie, kind of, if you could magically go back and say, hey, don't do this, do this, think about this, what would it be? What would you advise yourself? (laughs) I would advise myself to take advantage of every opportunity for networking, for developing relationships. All those opportunities where I went home concerned about things like sexual harassment, I would embrace them. And I would also embrace opportunities for growth. So all those great career opportunities that I turned down, either because of a sense of obligation or out of fear, I would have embraced those as well because it's an adventure. I think what I have today in my life that I did not have with the courage of 21-year-old me is embracing adventure, embracing the journey. There's not one career path. I'm on my fourth career and I'm enjoying each and every one of them. And I have no doubt that there'll be at least another one ahead of me. And so that would be it is embrace every minute of the journey. Right. And what you just described about multiple careers, this is absolutely the norm 
I mean, people say that about that's people that are you know, in their 20s today, they could have four or five careers. But that's been going on for a while, I think. I don't think everyone realizes that. And it's much more common to have multiple careers or different approaches to a career. I mean, even my career, I've been a professor for a long time, but my job has changed 180 degrees from what I used to do to what I do today. And it's gone through multiple iterations. And the beauty of the whole thing is it's really fun. It's really fun. And I think the more that each of us can take more agency over that path, the better. It's not always easy. Having mentors like you and leaders like you that could share their journeys and their point of view, I think is really helpful. At the end of the day, it's about each of us. And you've said it really for some of the people that you've talked to or advised. Each of us have to take agency over our own careers, our own lives and make choices and seek out the help that we need. You just said it, your job is fun. So it's not one job, but finding many jobs that Mm -hmm. are so fun that it doesn't feel like work where you are passionate about the outcome, about the impact of your day-to-day work. And then it'll become so easy (laughs) to come into work every day. And the last thing I would say, surround yourself in a workplace where you like the people you work with. Mm -hmm. That is so incredibly important is, you know, I come into work every day now and I just love each and every one of the members of our team. And that's a beautiful gift because you spend so much more time in the office than you do at home. (laughs) That's right. That's exactly right. I used to say, I still say that when Sunday night feels the same as Friday night, you know, you got a good job. (laughs) Absolutely. Julie Quinville, thank you so much for being on the SIDCAST, talking to me, sharing your story. I really learned a lot and really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you for the opportunity, Sydney. Thank you for listening to the SIDCAST. I'm really excited to be bringing you season three and really appreciative that you've chosen to listen to this episode. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the series and you will never miss a single episode. I welcome all feedback and I'd love to hear from you. I've gotten some great commentary over the course of the first two seasons and lots of great suggestions as well. You can contact me via my website, www.thesidcast.com, or you could email me directly at sidfinkelstein at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, I hope you'll tune into another one of our episodes And please give us a five-star review and share with others who you think would enjoy and benefit from the show as well. The SIDCAST is produced by the Podcast Laundry Production Company.